Hello and welcome to Scan Today's last week in AI podcast. We can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov. I recently finished my PhD at Stanford and I now work at a generative AI startup as a machine learning researcher. My name is Daniel Bashir, a visiting host today. I work on machine learning compilers full-time. I also co-run another publication called The Gradient along with Andre. And Daniel also co-runs the Last Week in AI newsletter for mm-hmm. a few years now. So Indeed. yeah, very much involved in this stuff. Uh, so yeah, uh, Jeremy is busy with his policy stuff as he is increasingly these days. Uh, so this is going to be a fun guest host episode. Before we dive in, we do have our quick ad. As you heard last week, we are being sponsored by the Super Data Science podcast, which is the most listened to data science podcast. Apparently, it's really well listened. It's the 12th technology podcast globally. It is hosted by John Cron, the chief data scientist and co-founder of the machine learning company Nebula. He was a guest host on episode 130. Cool guy. Uh, They have Crazy amount of episodes, interviews with a whole bunch of uh, different interesting AI people. So if you're interested in that sort of show, check them out. And just one more thing, quick uh, acknowledgement to listeners who reached out. So we had three or four emails, I think, regarding the XAI episode, X-Risk uh, episode. And it was great to hear from you what you thought and that a lot of people seem to like that format. We'll probably do more of those. So thank you for the emails. As always, you can email us at contact at lastweekin.ai. And we have uh, some nice new uh, Apple uh, reviews. So that's always fun as well. It's cool to see we're getting reviews from Norway, uh, from from Hong Kong, from the US, Italy, just everywhere. So, uh, you know, obviously for us, that's cool to see that there's listenership all around. And uh, yeah, it's always feels nice. So thank you again for everyone who put down a review. And with that out of the way, let's dive into the news, starting with the first sections, tools and applications, with the first story being Anthropic's Cloud AI chatbot gets a paid plan for heavy users. So uh, as you've heard, no doubt, in this podcast uh, so far, Anthropic has their Claude chatbot, which is essentially the closest competitor to ChatGPT in terms of company, essentially kind of a very similar thing you can do. Uh, they haven't been uh, launching quite as widely as ChatGPT for a while. They're lagging a little bit uh, behind in terms of uh having priced options, but now they have a pro option priced the same as ChatGPT Pro, $20 per month. And similar to ChatGPT Pro, there is now priority access, early access to new features, and more uh, ability to send messages. So yeah, it's uh, Anthropic kind of doing the same thing that uh, OpenAI has. Yeah, I've, I've only used Claude a little bit myself, but 
It's definitely not surprising to me that they were eventually going to do a paid option. I mean, the inference for these things, if you're just supporting so many users, it's a lot of money to be pouring into it. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't tried it, I think it's open to try for anyone. Uh, Claw 2 for free. And then if you're pro, you will be able to send five times uh, more messages. And uh, that will be around maybe uh, the cap for a paid subscriber, 100 messages every eight hours. So clearly still some limits there, but uh, yeah, I would say check them out. So our, our next story goes into AI image generation. A lot of you will probably have heard about MidJourney. I think that's probably the most famous AI image generation system right now, but there's a new generative AI image startup on the block called Ideogram. I really like that name actually. And they've launched with 16 and a half million in seed funding. That's led by A16Z and Index Ventures, some pretty, pretty impressive investors there. They're hoping to solve the problem of reliable text generation. And so this is sort of where, for example, if you wanna generate an image and you perhaps wanted a man holding a placard that says, Anything you want, really. My name is Bob. Sometimes AI image generation systems that exist today won't get the text quite right. And so Ideagram is concerned with this sort of thing, like lettering on signs and company logos. You can see that's definitely a business use case, and I can kind of see why this sort of fits the venture funding model. Um, and so they're offering preset image generation styles. These include typography, 3D rendering, cinematic, painting, fashion. And they're available for sign-up and beta if you want to go try them out. Yeah, notably, this company is started by people from uh, Google's Imagine team. So from the team that published uh, some papers on Google's large text image model last year that was pretty state-of-the-art, very high quality. So this is another example of researchers going from publishing papers to starting companies, which has been a real trend with AI, it seems. And the other trend here, given that this was people from the Imagen team, is, well, researchers flowing out of Google. Yeah. <laughs> And on to the lightning round. First up, we have Intuit launches generative AI-powered digital assistant for small businesses and consumers. So Intuit, the company that has several different types of products uh, for small businesses, now has Intuit Assist, which is this assistant. It will be embedded across the different uh, platform or products and will offer personalized recommendation and human assistance. Yeah, not too much uh, specifics here yet, but uh, another example how every single company wants to have AI features in their software now. And our next lightning round story is also about a company jumping on the AI chatbot bandwagon. This time it's Zoom, your favorite video conferencing technology, planning to introduce a ChatGPT style chatbot called AI Companion to its video conferences and chats. They're really mainly hoping to boost productivity for users. So if you're looking for help with office tasks and want to interact with a virtual assistant in real time during, during meetings, then the AI companion is for you. 
They're combining their own language model with Meta's Llama 2, uh, along with OpenAI and Anthropic. So this allows for pretty quick incorporation of advancements from multiple different models. They're also starting to roll out some other AI features like automatic transcription. So it seems like a, a lot to come from Zoom. For now, it's primarily just rebranding. They already had Zoom IQ. And so the current features of summarizing chat threads and automated responses are not new. And then they will be rolling out a lot of this AI companion stuff in the coming year. So unsurprising, I guess, that every single company wants to have an AI companion now. And uh yeah, uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, Zoom users throughout the world of industry will be talking to this AI soon enough. And on to applications and business, starting with China lets Baidu and others launch ChatGPT-like bots to public and their shares jump. So five Chinese tech firms, uh, among them Baidu and Sensimes, have launched their AI chatbots to the public after getting uh, approval. For instance, we have uh, ErnieBot uh, from Baidu and SenseChat from SenseTime, and they are now fully accessible to the public. There are also three other AI startups, uh, so Jipu AI, Minimax, and Baichuan Intelligent Technology that have also announced similar public launches. And uh, yeah, this is pretty big deal, it seems, right? Because... China has been pretty aggressive about regulating and, and having control over this uh, generative AI tech, unlike in the US. Uh, and now they there are these public products similar to ChatGPT. Yeah, it's an interesting direction to see. And if you look at what they've been doing, I, I haven't caught up on Matt Sheehan's latest work. He does a lot of great analysis on China's AI regulations, but it's certainly pretty selective, the types of things they want to regulate. You look at recommendation algorithms, which of course they and many other people worry about with regards to making people spend time on things that maybe aren't fantastic. And you can see how strongly they've clamped down on that. So it's not incredibly surprising to me that they would support this kind of thing, given the whole AI nationalism scenario we see, and maybe it not being something like a social media recommendation algorithm. But it is interesting to see those differences. Definitely. Yeah, if if you're curious or interested in these sorts of developments uh, and you haven't been keeping up, you can go back you know, a couple weeks. I forget. Uh, within the last few weeks, the actual rules governing generative AI, the interim uh policy was published and we covered some news. There were actual apps taken down from the Apple App Store because of these rules. So these approvals are in accordance to those rules that were just very recently published and um, really shows that, uh, you know, you got to be a little more careful and, and comply with some rules uh, in China, unlike the U.S., and real quick, there's one related story that we'll just mention. There was also a story that Tencent released an AI model uh, for businesses. So Tencent has launched its AI model Hunyun for business use at an annual uh, summit. 
is they're testing it for things like advertising and financial tech. Uh, they're integrating that with its existing products for video conferencing and social media and so on. So that's just uh, one more example of something released that wasn't ChatGPT-esque exactly. Our next story brings us back to a US-based company. Microsoft is saying that they will assume legal responsibility if customers using its AI co-pilot services get sued for copyright infringement, which is pretty interesting. The initiative is called Co-Pilot Copyright Commitment, CCC, which aims to address concerns from copyright holders about how AI companies handle protected works. So Microsoft is basically pledging here to defend customers and pay any adverse judgments or settlements resulting from copyright infringement lawsuits, as long as customers use the provided guardrails and content filters. This is actually really, really interesting. And I kind of like the the incentives they're setting up here, because one thing that people worry about a lot with the use of AI systems, of course, this is specifically about Copilot, but the worry is that, well, you can, if you're releasing a generative AI system, you can have some technical guardrails in there, but there's a lot people can still do to jailbreak, to do other nefarious things with them. And so really the, the best thing that people have come up with, or maybe not the best, but the most common solution is, well, we have guidelines for how we would like you to use this system. Here is a set of principles for how people should use generative AI systems. But there isn't that much teeth in it for the most part. So I, I like this idea of, well, for maybe some specific technologies saying, as long as you abide by our guardrails, we will protect you. That's more of a, a kind of positive way of setting up incentives in the right way here. Right. Yeah. We covered also very similarly, Adobe did this uh, actually a month or two ago for their Firefly image generation uh product where they basically did the same thing, a promising if you use Firefly to generate images and use them for your business, we will cover any legal fees that arise from that. So very similar move here by Microsoft makes a lot of sense and seems like, you know, if you want giant enterprise companies to take up your products, uh, Microsoft just launched to $30 per person enterprise uh, plan for companies for this AI co-pilot stuff, which is all across the different uh, products with things like you know Word and Outlook and Excel everywhere, right? So yeah, if you want companies to adopt and start using this stuff and definitely smart to basically say the laws aren't here yet, but don't worry, even if you'll get in trouble, we'll cover the fees. So smart. Uh, to the lightning round, first we have how we chose the time 100 most influential people in AI. So this is a quick write-up by time.com about their new time 100 AI list, which came out a day or two ago. And not too much to say here. If you're interested in seeing the list of 100, the top most uh, 100 most influential people in AI, you can check out time's list. Uh, I will say it seemed pretty predictable. I mean, for the most part, pretty reasonable. A lot of tech uh, influence, not very much 
academia presence, uh, some names that seem to be there mostly because these people are well-connected and more so than because they're influential. But uh, a lot of the kind of expected names you would see like Yana Kun or Yoshio Benjo, various things like that. Yeah. Pretty big names for sure. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was definitely an interesting list. With you, I, I thought most of it was predictable. I guess you and I have interviewed a good number of the people on that <laughs> list now. That's true. And um, definitely some some interesting exclusions, inclusions. And I think like you also, there were some names on there where I was like, hmm, I, I haven't even really heard of this person before. It's, it's also interesting the way that they laid out the graphic on the front page. I mean, I guess you kind of could expect this, that Sam Altman and Dennis Osabis were like the largest faces front and center stage. Um, so just the way that they kind of chose to lay that out and like highlight different people in it was, was pretty interesting to me though. Right. And they had four categories. They had leaders, innovators, shapers, and thinkers. Uh, I think in the, uh, innovators category, they had a lot of artists. So they had Tan Chiang, for instance, who is, you know, a science fiction author who you actually did interview that Charlie Brooker, who is uh, the creator of black mirror. So I don't know if they're, you know, the most influential people in AI or among the hundred most influential people in AI. But if you want to highlight some artists that are influential with respect to ideas related to AI, then I guess those are some good choices. So yeah, it's, it's a fun little list to browse. If you're For curious. sure. Before we move on, a quick correction. I interviewed a different science fiction author named Ken Liu. Ted Chong is like very high on my list of people I want to interview. Oh, so <laughs> that's my you, bad. If, yeah. No, no, it's good. But if you're listening to this and you, you know, happen to know how to get in touch with Ted Chong so I can interview him, please let me know. And next up, OpenAI is reportedly earning $80 million a month. The ChatGPT creator apparently is on now on track to generate over $1 billion in annual revenue. As we kind of all have heard a million times by this point, ChatGPT became the fastest growing app in history. It reached 100 million users in a short period of time. And if I remember my numbers correctly, Andre, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here. They topped out somewhere around 200 million and have experienced kind of a, a dip in usage since then. Does that sound right? Yeah, something along those lines. Hmm. So their, their revenue drives here, though, are, of course, the business version of ChatGPT offering a premium subscription service. They also sell API calls to their various AI models. So that's not just ChatGPT, but they have embedding models. They have things like Dolly 2, and those have varying prices depending on the inference costs. Right. I would suspect that the majority of this 80 million per month is coming from uh, enterprise users uh, or even just startups like mine using the API to build products and, and do things like that. Maybe there's a lot of, uh, you know, ChatGPT Pro subscribers, but uh, either way, I think it doesn't seem too surprising that they are now earning a lot of money per month. Uh, the revenue versus cost uh, comparison would be interesting because it's not clear of those 80 million, how much is that compared to how much they spend uh, might not be that different, actually. But uh, yeah, clearly OpenAI is very much growing rapidly, has been growing rapidly, and still seem to be kind of leading the pack in terms of this sort of technology. And next we have AI chip startup D-Matrix raises 110 million with backing from Microsoft. So this is their Series B round and they 
design chips optimized for generative AI applications and focus on the inference part. So instead of training, it's the part where you deploy a model and try to produce things cheaply and quickly instead of just optimizing your model, which is a pretty different process that uh, can be, let's say, more computationally expensive. Uh, obviously, 110 million is pretty significant, uh, and it hasn't been launched yet, but they say it will launch next year. Microsoft has committed to evaluating this chip for its own use uh, when it does come out. Mm. This is a this is a pretty hard industry to do a lot in, but the fact that they've got Microsoft as an investor and it sounds like Microsoft is committed to evaluating their chip definitely is um, at least a promising sign for them that they'll have somebody. Uh, also, maybe just putting that 110 million into context, this is definitely still a lot in Series B funding, but AI chip startups are famously a lot more capital intensive than many other companies. Pretty much any startup that is investing in novel hardware and that sort of thing is going to have a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot more costs on that end than a peer start than a peer software startup. So if you are looking around at different AI chip startups and, and their valuations and their funding, you're, you're going to start to see, you're going to see bigger numbers like this. And our next story is on another big raise, but this time for an Israeli startup, ThetaRay, who has raised $57 million in funding for an AI-based anti-money laundering platform. So not an AI chip startup this time, but their platform automatically scans and identifies illicit transaction activity at banks and other financial institutions. Obviously a, a pretty important use case for those places. And their customers include some pretty big, pretty big corporates, Santander Bank, TravelX, as well as fintech startups. Their customer base has apparently grown tenfold, and annual recurring revenue has grown fivefold in the past year, which is pretty impressive. Right, a rare story of funding that doesn't involve large language models, as far as I can tell. They have a product. Uh, branded Sonar, which is used to monitor the transactions within banks to monitor for illicit activity and suspicious stuff. So um, yeah, there are other types of AI still aside from chatbots, but uh, I guess uh, this is a pretty big raise, 57 million, still pretty significant. Next story, oh, another chip story. Sapion raises 46 million for AI chips. So Sapion is a spin-out from SK Telecom and is, as you might imagine, a Korean company. And they are planning to provide uh, a full-stack AI strategy. So they will uh, have AI semiconductor hardware, algorithms, and software. So pretty ambitious. They've already developed the X220 chip for deep learning uh, computation. Their next generation is X330. Uh, and they are currently valued at, in their Series A, they uh, were valued at $380 million. So yeah, it's a tough space, but uh, given how big a space it is and how dominant NVIDIA is, it seems quite a few players are stepping up. 
Our next story is about the Series B funding round of a company that was formerly known as Generally Intelligent. I actually interviewed their founders, Kanjun and Josh, last year, I want to say, towards the end of it. So if you want to learn more, a little bit more about them, you can see my interview in The Gradient. This is a lot earlier, but they've now raised $200 million in a Series B funding round, uh, valuing the company at over $1 billion. And now, rather than being named Generally Intelligent, they have changed the name to Imbue. They plan to use their funding to develop AI systems that can reason and code. The goal is to build practical AI agents that can accomplish larger goals and work safely in the real world. And they believe that this primary blocker to effective AI agents is the ability to robustly reason. You probably have heard about a lot of the different AI agents that are sort of getting deployed today. Um, that are using sort of mixtures of models in order to break down and, and accomplish various tasks. And from, from what I understand, I haven't used too many of them myself, things like AutoGPT, but the feedback they've gotten is, you know, they can, they can kind of do stuff, they can break down tasks, and there's something impressive about it. But a lot of people wouldn't really use them in, in anything critical. So I think that Imbue is really hoping to establish this platform creating for creating custom AI models that can do some of these more complicated things you might be interested in. Right. Yes. Uh, so this is kind of in the same realm as some of these other companies we've talked about, AI21 Labs, Cohere, Adept, all of whom raised hundreds of million, millions of dollars in recent months. So it's another company that's aiming to uh, train gigantic uh, language models similar to OpenAI and Anthropic. Seems like the space is getting a little bit busy with, you know, like half a dozen companies being valued at over a billion dollars and getting Just hundreds of millions bit. of dollars. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this one is already valued at over 1 billion. 200 million is pretty significant. So we'll probably be seeing some new AI models coming out of uh, Imbue pretty soon. And on to projects and open source, starting with uh, announcement from Meta announcing the commercial relicensing and expansion of Dino V2 plus the introduction of Facet. So Dino V2 is a computer vision model that's been around for a little while but now it is uh, licensed commercially in keeping with Meta's general trend to open source their AI models. And they also are introducing Facet, which is a fairness evaluation benchmark for computer vision models, which allows you to analyze the biases that your model displays, uh, things like that. So it's a pretty nice uh, tool set for checking on you know the sort of problems that these models tend to have uh, for instance being biased towards uh, classifying certain uh, genders as being in um, certain careers uh, things like that so yeah it's uh, interesting just how committed meta seems to be with this uh, approach of uh, open sourcing a lot of things and our next story comes out of the UAE. Their company G42 has launched an open source Arabic language AI model. Um, and this was uh, really a collaboration between a group of engineers, researchers, and a Silicon Valley 
based chip company. So they released an advanced Arabic language software that can power generative AI applications. The new large language model called JACE contains 13 billion parameters, and it was made from a very large batch of data containing Arabic and English. A portion of that is coming from computer code. The group included academics, engineers, and they really embarked on this project in part because they said that there are a few large language models that are bilingual. Um, they were created with the help of supercomputers produced by Silicon Valley-based Cerebrus Systems. They are the ones who designed these dinner plate-sized chips that compete with NVIDIA's powerful AI hardware. Um, funny enough, this is another company that I've interviewed. If you want to see my interview with their... I'm, I'm plugging a lot of things here. Um, but <laughs> spoke to their CEO, Andrew Feldman, quite a while ago, if you want to hear a little bit about them. Since NVIDIA's chips are in pretty short supply right now, you'll, you'll definitely have a hard time getting an H100 if you want to. Uh, that's really driven companies around the world to seek alternatives. So it definitely seems like um, a, pretty, a pretty good thing for, for some of those competitors. Right. Yeah. Daniel uh, has been interviewing a lot of people on the Gradient podcast. So I guess we'll include some links relevant to this episode. And uh, yeah, not too much to say here. Uh, we've already seen some of these players in the Middle East start to release really large language models like Falcon. So it seems like that region is going to be quite impactful. And it's interesting to see this being part of a strand of different nations uh, releasing kind of more local language models, so to speak. We saw that recently in Japan with a Japan-specific language model. We've seen that also in South Korea. So it seems like something that we can expect to happen kind of you know, throughout world, maybe in the English-speaking world. ChatGPT is pretty universal, but elsewhere... There probably will be many different models that are better catered to certain regions. And speaking of that, actually, there is a new Falcon model. So uh, we've covered how there was a release of the 70 billion, I believe, parameter Falcon model a few months ago. That was, I think, the first open sourced commercially licensed model that was uh, kind of very significant, the closest to competing with ChatGPT as far as what you could get uh, in open source and use in your business. Now they've released uh, an even larger model, a 180 billion parameter Falcon model. Uh, so this is coming after Meta has released their Llama 2 models uh, commercially licensed. So for a while there, it seemed like Llama 2, 70 billion was probably where to go. Now you have yet another option, the 180 billion option, uh, which is the size of GPT-3, at least going back to the original GPT-3, not too clear how it compares to GPT-3.5, but this is getting to kind of the size of up there in terms of what these language models tend to be. Uh, yeah, so again, it's it's pretty impressive just how quickly these kinds of closed source models like GPT-3 uh, are being, you know, closely matched or, or even kind of remotely closely matched by open source models that anyone can use for their own use cases without any sort of licensing fees. Our first story in research and advancements comes out of a group from Alibaba, and in it, they introduce a frontier large vision language model called QuenVL. This is actually a series of vision language models that are 
by, by virtue of being vision language model is designed to perceive and understand both text and images. They exhibit pretty great performance in tasks like image captioning, question answering, visual localization, flexible interaction, and their evaluation covers a pretty wide range of tasks. So these include zero shot captioning, visual or document visual question answering, and grounding. So the paper presents a lot of more, a lot more information about this if you'd like to see it. But the features include things like, well, the strong performance, as I mentioned earlier, strong, which is you know shocker. Um, it's multilingual and supports text recognition. So uh, it does end-to-end -end recognition of Chinese and English bilingual text and images, which is pretty impressive. Uh, it can also do a multi-image interleaved conversation. So that allows for input and comparison of multiple images and specifying questions related to the images. And it is the first generalist model supporting grounding in Chinese. So it can detect bounding boxes through open domain language expression in both Chinese and English. And it can also deal with fine grain image recognition and understanding using slightly higher resolution images. Right. So this is building on the Quen 7B models that we've really uh, covered, I think, maybe a month ago or so. So these were uh, pretty significant open source uh, language models from Alibaba. And now this is basically expanding from there to this multimodal uh, capabilities of going from just text to image plus text and this is also coming from alibaba and uh, yeah they'll be releasing the code and demo and models so kind of pretty quick movement here and part of this general trend we've seen with language models of increasingly everything being multimodal so chatbots kind of being able to take in image inputs in addition to text inputs pretty often and so with this you can imagine doing things like you know putting in an image and asking the chat model questions about it uh, as you said text recognition and just a bunch of a bunch of general things that involve reasoning about both an image and text so yeah very cool to see uh, Alibaba really moving fast to build these models that are more specific to the Chinese language Next story, RLAIF, Scaling Reinforcement Learning from Human Feedback with AI Feedback. So we've talked about reinforcement learning from human feedback quite a lot. That's when you train a base language model that just trains to do autocomplete to be better at essentially being a chatbot. So you give it examples of conversations with people and people give feedback basically saying, okay, this is a good response to my query and this is a bad response. And then you can basically train your model a bit more so that instead of just doing autocomplete, it does intelligent autocomplete that kind of matches what the user wanted from it. And so this paper is looking at reinforcement learning from AI feedback, which is where you train with maybe some human involvement, but less or just no a human involvement at all. We've covered some examples of more and more types of algorithms that utilize this. Most notably, uh, Anthropic has their constitutional AI approach. So far, it's never been, it's, it's like a fast moving area. So this one, this paper actually uh, 
coined this term, R-L-A-I-F, although the general idea of learning from feedback is not new, and, and there's been various examples of people using AI feedback comparable to human feedback. And so in this paper, they show that with this particular approach from um, AI feedback, they basically do a more rigorous analysis and comparison of RLHF compared to RLAIF. And they show that you can get them to be pretty close in quality for this one task of text summarization, uh, as opposed to the supervised learning where you don't do reinforcement learning Without getting into it, this is just uh, a good example of that this pretty important technique that still is kind of at the forefront of when you train chatbots can be made more scalable uh, instead of requiring kind of a lot of human annotation. A lot of it seems to be doable with AI uh, at this point. And our first story in the lightning round might be interesting to you if you've been concerned about the use of ChatGPT in coursework. That's, of course, become a really big conversation with students starting to use these AI systems for things like writing essays or writing code. And the performance of ChatGPT on university-level exams and homework has been evaluated before, but this paper also looks at the perception, performance, and detectability of conversational AI systems across 32 university courses. So this is a pretty interesting evaluation. When they did these evaluations, they found that the performance on these university-level exams and homework is comparable to or even surpasses that of students in certain courses, um, and that certain courses bit is important. They found that the performance gap is a bit smaller in questions requiring high levels of knowledge and cognitive process, that ChatGPT outperforms students on questions requiring factual knowledge, not a huge surprise, but it's outperformed by students on math-related questions and trick questions. And that's a a really important one, I think, because that speaks to, well, math-related questions, trick questions might rely on your, you could call it your system two thinking, sort of taking a step back, breaking down questions, and going through with reasoning. ChatGPT and its oak have famously had trouble with pretty basic things like arithmetic. There's definitely some pretty interesting work that's been coming out lately that is seeking to close this gap and prompt these systems in different ways so as to overcome those challenges, but they remain challenges at the moment. Exactly. This is a pretty cool paper. If you go into it, they have many pretty cool graphs and figures that you can take a look at uh, and kind of get a pretty high level idea. So for instance, in figure one, they basically summarize all of these results for all of these classes and they show the average GPT grade and the average student grade. Uh, In some examples, uh, as you said, for example, in algorithms and discrete math, ChatGPT is much, much worse. Uh, In a lot of them, they are quite similar. So for instance, an intro to computer science or operating system, the grades are pretty equivalent. And I suppose because that is a more knowledge-heavy kind of approach. Uh, Similarly, in an intro to psychology, uh, I think that's a lot about knowing things. And ChatGPT, as we know, is quite good at that. Uh, And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, quite interesting. Like on average, it seems that ChatGPT is pretty comparable, with some kind of outliers in terms of it not being as good or it being better. So um, 
quite an interesting study with a lot of different uh, information you can glean from it and very approachable paper you can take a look at. Next, Sync Dreamer, generating multi-view consistent images from a single view image. So this is the idea that if you take one image of an object from a certain perspective, uh, can you generate images of it from other perspectives? Can you kind of rotate it in your head and generate uh, additional images? And this is actually a very complex task if you think about it. This is basically inferring the 3D shape of an object from a single image. Uh, and this is a paper showing a pretty significant advance in that problem, they are getting to a point where if you take one image, they can generate very realistic uh, images from multiple perspectives to a point that you can actually create 3D models, 3D meshes. So they show that with one image, they can create these synthetic rotated images and then they can do what's called NERF, which is essentially the uh, you know state of the art thing to generate 3D models from multiple perspectives, multiple images from multiple perspectives. So yeah, very cool. Uh, you can go to, they have a web page with examples. Uh, so if you, I think just Google Sync Dreamer, uh, there's some nice GIFs and videos that really demonstrate how from a single image, we can now get to pretty good 3D models of these objects. Next up, our first story on policy and safety. You've all undoubtedly heard about the big chip restrictions on China. This time, the US is curbing AI chip exports from NVIDIA and AMD to some countries in the Middle East, not just China. Uh, NVIDIA and AMD have stated that these restrictions won't have an immediate material impact on their revenue. Of course, they, they'd want that to be the case. And the U.S. government hasn't really provided specific reasons for these new restrictions, but typically they're imposed for national security reasons. There could be a bunch going on here. It's it's kind of interesting to see this happening at the same time that you've seen uh, pretty impressive open source models come out of the UAE and such. So it's it's a little bit hard to say what the regulators are, are thinking exactly, but definitely an interesting development. Right. Yeah, this entire kind of ongoing story of the export restrictions, I think, has always been pretty interesting in terms of it being a very aggressive move to undercut China. And in terms of what you've seen since then of NVIDIA having developed kind of less powerful devices specifically for the Chinese market so that they can sell them with, uh, I think it was the H100 compared to the A100, as we've touched on before. This being expanded to some Middle Eastern countries is, I would say, also significant. I mean, it seems like VS is really doubling down on this general approach of uh, export restrictions for NVIDIA, which is a lot of leverage in terms of being able to be a leader in AI at this point. So... Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty dramatic, I think. <laughs> Indeed. And next we have China suspected of using AI on social media to sway U.S. voters, Microsoft says. So Microsoft researchers have discovered a network of fake and Chinese-controlled social media accounts that are using AI apparently to influence voters. 
So there's not too many details here. The research did not specify which social media platforms were affected, but they did have screenshots that showed posts from Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and it seems like this is pretty recent that uh, the use of generative AI technology began in March. This AI allows them to create content that is more visually appealing with uh, both images and text. And uh, yeah, so not too clear just how much of a big deal this is, but given that we've already had cases of foreign countries trying to interfere with US elections, with misinformation and things like that by uh, countries like China, Russia, and Iran. It uh, is, let's say, at least a little bit concerning to see that now AI is part of the picture and there are still ongoing efforts to influence uh, AI elections as the 2024 presidential elections uh, gets closer. It's really tricky to make sense of how much exactly is going on and what kind of impact it's going to have. I feel like there still isn't a great amount of agreement on what exactly happened in that 2016 election, how much Russia affected things. Um, Of course, I have a perspective on it and I have the evidence and things that I've read. Other people have different views. And I think looking at 2024 too, um, it's just kind of interesting to see because you look at different studies on, well, when people are looking at AI-generated media, how do they react? And there are plenty of studies out there that say that people are actually pretty good at separating out the real from the fake. And so um, in addition to that, just kind of not having a clear picture of what exactly is being done um, does does make it a little bit tricky to say like what could possibly happen here. But it, it's good that we have, you know, uh, folks like Microsoft who are kind of going after this and, and trying to identify these accounts. Right. It's There are some interesting examples and the report is pretty readable. So you can definitely go ahead and take a look. Uh, one example they have is basically of a graphic. So it's not like a deep fake per se. It's just sort of a propaganda poster almost. Uh, so if nothing else, of course, this is going to speed up the efficiency of these kinds of uh, operations. But it's also worth noting that these are already super sophisticated kind of uh, efforts within these uh, countries. They say that this stuff is coming from an elite group within China's Ministry of Public Security. So I wouldn't say personally I'm super concerned. I think AI will kind of augment these kinds of attacks and capabilities more so than fundamentally change them or make them way more of a big deal. Still something that we certainly have expected and are now seeing to start. Our first story in the lightning round is for you mushroom hunters in the audience. I know there's a lot of you out there. The New York Mycological Society has warned against buying mushroom foraging and identification books written by AI because they might provide deadly advice. The society is describing these AI-written guidebooks as, as a dangerous scam with invented authors and credentials that could mislead readers into eating poisonous mushrooms. Definitely... Um, and an AI, AI risk here, I hadn't thought about getting people to eat poisonous mushrooms. 
And this problem of AI written books is expected to increase as scammers turn to chatbots to generate content. Of course, with something like ChatGPT now, it's probably very, very, very easy to generate an ebook if you want on virtually any topic. Um, so be careful about the books you buy for mushroom hunting. Maybe don't write those yourself and cause people to eat poisonous mushrooms. Right. And I suppose also on top of that, be careful about reading random websites now because you could also very easily create a whole website where everything is AI generated. So more than ever, it is important to understand where information comes from, you know, not just kind of read some text and uh, take it at that. Now it might be misinformation. It might be accidental misinformation because of AI hallucination. So this is a pretty specific example, I think, of a more general uh, principle of understanding that if you just see some text these days, that's not enough to really trust in whatever it is saying. And next story from NBC News, we have ads for AI sex workers are flooding Instagram and TikTok. So this has many examples of these kinds of ads that are advertising apps that have sexually provocative AI chatbots that promise not safe for work pictures and chats with no uh, censoring. NBC News found 35 app developers running sexually explicit ads on meta-owned apps and 14 app developers running similar ads on TikTok. So it's basically kind of a gold rush. Uh, there's a, a lot of them. Google actually said that its app store does not allow sexually gratifying services and has suspended several of these apps and ads. And so, yeah, this is, I guess, perhaps unsurprising, but it's pretty prominent, it seems. And uh, this article has some interesting examples of what this sort of thing looks like. Yeah, I'm uh, definitely not a fan of seeing more and more of this. I mean, it, it seems like given what we all know about the internet, this is the, the type of thing we're going to expect with, with AI image generation models and, and things that can generate content. Um, I'm glad there's some crackdown on it, but doesn't make me happy. <laughs> yeah, and even the the sex aspect aside, there a lot of their branding is around your smart AI girlfriend. As you might imagine, this seems primarily to be targeted at men. So I think even the nudity and, and sex aspect of this aside, this whole idea of AI girlfriends and you know, romantic chatbots and so on are a thing that's around to stay. And that's just a weird part of culture that will become ever more prominent. And next up, uh, the UK has released its five ambitions for an upcoming global AI safety summit. There's a focus on risks and policy. The summit aims to bring together thought leaders from academia, politics, tech companies to regulate AI technology. And they're focused on risks posed by powerful AI systems, including safe AI development for the public good, international collaboration on AI safety. It's definitely interesting to see the UK and their sort of influence slash perspectives on safety in general. I think that there have been a lot of people from there and maybe investment from the government and universities as well 
in looking at AI risks and safety. Recently, there's been the the AI Foundation uh, Models Task Force that's led by Ian Hogarth, who wrote this great article called AI Nationalism a couple of years ago. Of course, DeepMind, very invested in safety, based in London. The Future of Humanity Institute, led by Nick Bostrom, who wrote Superintelligence, that's based um, over in the UK as well. So a lot of, lot of interesting AI safety stuff going on there. Yeah, when this uh, comes about, I think we can safely expect um, at least a lot of news coming out of it. It's not clear how much actual policy or significant outcomes there will be, but seems like this event is shaping up to be pretty significant. And on to our last section, synthetic media and art. The first one being AI took the stage at the world's largest art festival, here's what happened. So the Edinburgh Fringe Festival is uh, one of the largest performing arts festivals uh, in the world. It spans 25 uh, or so days, 24 days, and there are tens of thousands of performances, uh, thousands of different uh, shows. It's, It's really quite huge. And so this article talks about how this year, Around 20% of the shows at the festival were about AI or included references to it. There were some uh, examples in the article. Uh, a funny one was about Vanessa 5000, which is this sex robot uh, played by a comedian and a clown named Courtney Paroso. And yeah, there are just many different examples of AI being explored in theater, uh, stand-up comedy, dance, and and so on. Seems like in the cases where AI was used in improv comedy shows, that audiences often laughed at AI rather than with it, which given where things are at the moment, I'm not entirely surprised. I guess we could maybe see it as as a bit of an advancement when, when that changes. To be clear, uh, just so I don't misspeak, uh, the 20% numbers comes from 40 shows that we offer here suggested. And there's uh, quite a lot of uh, more detail that is worth getting into by reading the article. There is some discussion of uh, this show, Artificial Intelligence Improvisation, where they make uh, human improvisers collaborate with a chatbot uh, and kind of... uh, yeah, discussing you know whether the chatbot, ChatGPT, was good at the sort of improv stuff, and uh, yeah, there's kind of a, a fair amount of detail about a few of these shows that are quite interesting. Our next story is about Ghostwriter, which is uh, an anonymous musical creator. You might have heard about a previous unauthorized track this creator released where they used an AI voice to mimic Drake and The Weeknd, which was pretty interesting. So they've released yet another unauthorized track that uh, used AI voice effects to mimic Travis Scott. And this track was removed from official streaming services, as you'd expect, but gained popularity on social media and, of course, inspired similar compositions. Um, Ghostwriter has been engaging with industry figures. This includes record labels, tech leaders, artists to explore the potential of AI and music. 
it's uh, definitely a mixed bag the way these things have been reacted to. Definitely certain artists are not happy about this. I, I believe Grimes has been pretty open about, well, if you want to uh, take my voice and, and create music out of it and like share royalty fees or something, that's chill. But it's it's curious to see how this will develop. Exactly. Yeah, this is, uh, as we've covered on and off, uh, very quickly evolving area and even maybe more so than visual text to image generation, this ability to replicate the vocals of famous artists is a huge deal that is still sort of being worked out here. So Ghost Rider was this very big figure with uh, their song that was taken down, but it appears that even though this song Heart on My Sleeve was removed from streaming services, the artists or group behind it have been meeting with industry uh, labels and so on. And Yeah, it's... Uh, a weird time and uh, these AI songs are increasingly getting more and more kind of sophisticated and, and well done. So you can go to this article to check it out, take a listen and get a sense for the state of things right now. Next, artists sign open letters saying generative AI is good, actually. So a group of artists have organized this open letter to Congress in which they argue that generative AI isn't so bad and that the creative community should be included in talks about how technology should be regulated and defined. This is basically providing the pro case of AI tools, not just kind of stealing work from artists or, or stealing their work in their training, but also a positive side that AI tools do lower the barriers in creating art and that artists should be consulted in the process of guiding their development and re regulation. While also this report, this letter also highlights the concerns about exploiting artist labor and things around IP and things like that. Uh, so yeah, kind of a counter narrative uh, take almost. Uh, most artists have been pretty critical of AI. Some have started utilizing it. So this is preventing, uh, presenting that case. Not sure how much impact this will have, but uh, if nothing else, definitely a new entry in this whole ongoing discourse that's been pretty active and, and pretty turbulent, I would say, as far as I've seen. This is definitely another story where one of the big things is about, well, the way these technologies develop, the way that people get replaced or end up interacting with the technologies and, and what that tends to look like is really driven by the choices we make about how to create, work with, integrate these systems. And so I think this is definitely something to watch and just to kind of remind ourselves of that. Right. Uh, also, I will mention a little bit more. So this letter has been organized by Creative Commons, and you can actually go read it. Uh, there are only 79 signatories. And a lot of them are not actually uh, signed by name. So there's like a lot of signatories on here like Crazer or Mezdez or BB or other faces seems to be more people or artists who utilize AI heavily in their art and not sort of more general people that have this view. Uh, so it may not be kind of a huge uh, group sending this letter. Still, it's 
it does show that there is this perspective uh, among some people. Our next story is about a particular digital artist, Rithik Anadol, who creates AI-generated paintings. And his next canvas is going to be the exterior of The Sphere in Las Vegas. This is pretty soon to debut. It's a 366-foot-tall globe-shaped events venue that's going to open later this month on September 29th. Uh, so the, the exterior is basically a 580,000 square foot programmable LED screen that can be used as a 360 degree canvas by, by artists, which is pretty interesting. Um, his piece is titled Machine Hallucinations Sphere, which uses publicly available data and machine learning algorithms to create large scale animated abstractions inspired by outer space, by nature and by urban environments. It's going to run for four months and is part of the Exosphere art program, which aims to redefine the future of entertainment by combining cutting-edge technologies with emerging experiences. Right. So uh, Rafik Anadol has been at this for a while. This is the images here of the artwork seem pretty in line with uh, other work, broadly speaking, these are sort of moving textures that are trained with AI. So these are very dynamic, abstract images, as you said. There are some interesting uh, details here of this being split into two parts, where the first part was trained on uh, a million, over a million publicly available images taken by satellites and spacecraft, the second one being about images of flora and fauna. And yeah, you really got to go look up at images of a sphere thing to get a sense of it. It's it's just gigantic. It's, you know, like um, uh, if you think about a Ferris wheel and how it looks in the city skyline, this is comparable or bigger than that. So yeah, a uh, cool story of an AI artist or an artist that heavily utilizes AI uh, getting to showcase this kind of art. Okay, well, with that, we are finished. Uh, quicker episode this time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Scandi Today's Last Week in AI podcast. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our text newsletters at lastweekin.ai. Thank you, Daniel, for being a co host. Thanks for having me. And uh, for our listeners, we did mention a few interviews that Daniel has done. We will include links to them as with all the other articles in the podcast description. And if you just want to look up the podcast on which these interviews are, that is the Gradient podcast, where there's a lot of interviews with AI experts uh, of all sorts. But uh, regardless, as always, please do share this with your friends. If you like it, please review us if you want to make us feel nice or get in touch if you have some thoughts to share at contact at Last Week in AI. And all that aside, please be sure to keep tuning in. <laughs>